for the DEA to maintain this notion that cannabis does not possess accepted medical use in the United States at a time when a majority of the country lives in jurisdictions that allow the medical use of marijuana simply doesn't pass the smell test. You know, the 24,000 papers and peer-reviewed journal-published places in the thousand-year history we have, we still don't have anything that's even close to conclusive proof that says that it can be used medicinally and therapeutically. It's why we need to continue studying it more. It's why, in addition to this decision, which was saying that they would not reschedule, it didn't meet the criteria for Schedule Two. They did say, we're gonna have more people research, and that's a really good thing. I've written position papers in support of that, and I'm hoping that one of the research centers is here at the University of Colorado. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, in a recent decision, the Drug Enforcement Administration has ruled that marijuana will remain a Schedule I substance under the Controlled Substances Act. Substances that are listed in Schedule I are determined by the Food and Drug Administration to have no medical use. The DEA denied two petitions seeking to change marijuana's official federal designation as a Schedule I drug. There was a silver lining to this announcement for marijuana advocates, however. It was revealed that federal authorities will open up new avenues for more people and institutions to manufacture marijuana for scientific purposes. So in regards to Schedule 1, DEA Chief Chuck Rosenberg said the decision isn't based on danger. The decision is based on whether marijuana, as determined by the FDA, is safe and effective medicine. And it's not. The decision continues to classify marijuana in the same category as heroin, LSD, and other drugs like ecstasy. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the recent decision by the DEA to keep marijuana on the Schedule One list. We'll look at the impact, the legalization of marijuana, manufacturing marijuana for scientific purposes, and what the future holds on this controversial topic. Our first guest today is Ben Court to help us do that. He's the business development manager for the Center for Addiction Recovery and Rehabilitation, part of the University of Colorado's health system. Ben's passion for recovery, prevention, and harm reduction comes from his own struggle with substance abuse, sober since 1996. Ben is a junior fellow at the University of Florida's Drug Policy Institute and serves on the boards of Project SAM, which stands for Smart Approaches to Marijuana, and the Stout Street Foundation. Welcome to the show, Ben Court. Thanks so much, Craig. And our other guest today is Paul Armentano. He is the Deputy Director of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and a guest contributor to TheHill.com. His writing on marijuana and marijuana policy has appeared in various peer-reviewed scientific journals 
in over two dozen anthologies. He's the co-author of the book Marijuana is Safer, So Why Are We Driving People to Drink? He's also the author of The Citizen's Guide to State-by-State Marijuana Laws. Paul was also the principal investigator for the Defense Council in U.S. v. Schweder, the first evidentiary hearing since 1973 to challenge the constitutionality of cannabis as a Schedule I controlled substance. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Ben, let's start with you. Could you give us a little bit of the background of the history of how marijuana got on the DEA's list and what your impression of why it's staying there? (laughs) I think that you are going to be better served by letting Paul do that. I'm actually not a student of the history that goes back that far. Great. Well, let's, let's throw it to Paul then. Go ahead, Paul. Well, cannabis is classified as a Schedule I controlled substance because Congress gave it that classification when the Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1970. Uh, At that time, there was very little peer-reviewed research available with regard to marijuana, and that's why as a part of that act, uh, Congress put together a gold ribbon presidential commission called the Schaefer Commission to study marijuana and make recommendations on marijuana policy. Uh, Those recommendations were made in 1972. Uh, The federal government was told by the Schaefer Commission that a smart public policy with regard to marijuana would be to decriminalize it, and Congress rejected that opinion, and marijuana has remained in Schedule One ever since. Well, Ben, how does your work with CEDAR and Project SAM impact this issue? You know, my work with CEDAR at the University of Colorado Hospital has me right in the center of this, more in today's uh, landscape than it is, you know, the history of this. I, I understand less about what happened in the 70s than I do about what has happened from an addiction treatment standpoint, from a kind of on-the-ground perspective in Colorado in, in the last couple of years. So that actually led me to my affiliation with, with Sam when Dr. Sabet and Patrick Kennedy and Stu Gitlow and those guys called their primary motivation in getting Sam going was to have public policy be influenced by sound scientific thought, which <laughs> it would be the first time we had done that in this country, but it would be pretty cool if we figured it out. So um, I'm kind of the guy on the ground in Colorado hoping to keep them all appraised to what's happening here from our perspective. And what is the ramifications of this decision? Paul, how does this implement especially with respect to how many states there are that have individualized medical and, in some instances, recreational use of marijuana. Well, this was a predictable decision uh, for anyone who's familiar with the past history of the DEA as an agency. The DEA is the modern equivalent of the Flat Earth Society. They're in the reality denial business. And at the end of the day, they're a political organization, and they made a political decision, not a scientific one. The science on marijuana, particularly its use as a therapeutic agent, is clear in 2016. Humans have a thousand-year history using cannabis therapeutically. If one goes on PubMed, the repository for all peer-reviewed scientific literature, there's over 24,000 peer-reviewed scientific papers regarding marijuana, and 26 states now acknowledge the use of marijuana as a medicine by statute. For the DEA to maintain this notion that cannabis does not possess accepted medical use in the United States at a time when a majority of the country lives in jurisdictions that allow the medical use of marijuana simply doesn't pass the smell test. 
Ben, how is marijuana viewed? Or what's the DEA's arguments? They think this is a gateway drug. Do they think that it's as dangerous as heroin? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I wouldn't presume to speak for the DEA. What I can tell you is that when it comes to scheduling, you know, there's certain criteria that the drugs meet or do not meet, and then they fall into one of the schedules one through four. And what the DEA decided in this particular decision was that I think clearly as much as a lot of people would like to see it be different, probably including a lot of people in the administration and in the DEA, the the reality is that, you know, the 24,000 papers and peer-reviewed journal published places and the thousand-year history we have, we, we still don't have anything that's even close to conclusive proof that says that it can be used medicinally and therapeutically. Um, it's why we need to continue studying it more. It's why, in addition to this decision, which was saying that they would not reschedule, just be, it didn't meet the criteria for Schedule 2. They did say, we're going to have more people research, and that's a really good thing. I've written position papers in support of that, and I'm hoping that one of the research centers is here at the University of Colorado. Well, why does marijuana get such a bad name? I mean, what is it that has it so much different than alcohol, which is obviously permitted? Well, as the author of a book uh, called Marijuana is Safer, Why Are We Driving People to Drink? Uh, I think my stance is probably uh, rather obvious, certainly by any objective metric, whether we're talking about dependence liability or abuse potential or toxicity, risk of overdose, cost to society. Marijuana is far safer than alcohol. And I think this is an important point to make when we're talking about scheduling and public policy. As Ben mentioned, there are different criteria for the scheduling of drugs. There's Schedule 1 all the way to Schedule 5. Uh, but not all drugs are scheduled. Alcohol and tobacco, despite their abuse potential, are not included in the scheduling. And we believe that marijuana should also be descheduled to allow states to have the autonomy, the flexibility, and the freedom to set their own marijuana regulatory policies free from federal government interference. Ben, what are the misconceptions that exist about marijuana? I mean, how does your own experience with uh, substance abuse play into it? The misconceptions are great, and they continue to, uh, the delta between the conceptions and the reality just continues to get larger and larger. I think one of the most important points that we can make here, when and, and I think Paul said it very well here, we, we have a federal government that has not rescheduled, yet we have a majority of the country that thinks that medicinal is okay, thinks that marijuana does have medicinal properties. We have a lot of states uh, that have sided with voters saying that they can have access to what they're calling medicinal. Um, but public opinion does not make something true. Science, solid, sound, vetted science makes something true. And what we've had is kind of this big public opinion battle that's been going on really for 30 years. And I think a lot of it from our friend Paul's organization, which, but recently, the last couple of years has been way hijacked by these guys who are profiteering in the business is kind of what I'm seeing in Colorado. But the the idea that marijuana is, one, not addictive, is something that is continuing to be kind of sold to the world out there, and that's just categorically not true. Now, it is considerably less addictive as is measured than some other things, uh, tobacco, for example. For me, the argument that you have in that is to limit tobacco and alcohol consumption more than it is to expand the consumption of marijuana. Another is that a person can't become 
physically addicted to it. Um, the DSM, which is the manual that we use in psychiatric medicine, uh, the fifth iteration of it came out last year and for the first time ever included cannabis withdrawal as a diagnosable condition. And that's because the, the cannabis of today is so different than even the cannabis of the 70s or the 80s and certainly what's naturally occurring. So those are two of the big misconceptions. And then to address the alcohol one, it's a difficult argument for me to weigh in on because I feel like we are kind of, I'm constantly being asked this, well, is it safer than, than alcohol? And what's the difference between it and alcohol? And the differences are innumerable. And is it safer than, we don't do that with drugs in my field. We don't do the, this one's better than this one, this one's worse than that one. What, what we do is kind of look at reducing harms associated with. So the side I am always looking at this through is from the negative aspects of. And while there are absolutely positive aspects and some interesting things happening with the study of potential medicinal properties inside of certain elements of, there's a lot of negative effects from the use of this substance as well that just aren't getting talked about. Well, there's certainly enough to talk about. And Paul, how do we have the issue of the various states' approvals of these things competing with the supremacy clause and the Constitution and federal control of this? I mean, ultimately, let's envision the situation where we have 50 states that all say in one form or another, marijuana use is fine. We've approved it. And then we have a federal government that's on the other side of the fence. What's going to happen? Well, we are getting to the point where, in fact, that could be the reality. There's going to be five additional states this November where voters will decide on the adult use of marijuana. And in four additional states, voters will decide on the use of marijuana for therapeutic purposes. The federal government, when it comes to marijuana policy, simply does not lead. At a minimum, it may eventually follow what the states are doing, but it has never led on this issue and it has never engaged in a public policy that has been guided by science. As was said earlier in this program, it would be tremendous if science was guiding federal policy, not just in marijuana, but in all sorts of other public policies. But unfortunately, that has not been the case, and I don't expect it to be the case in this arena anytime soon. Well, there was a recent Ninth Circuit decision. I don't have the case at my fingertips, but it was in the last several weeks, and it decided that where there is a marijuana dispensary there, or uh, usage of marijuana in compliance with state law, that a federal government cannot prosecute. That is because there was a specific budgetary provision that was enacted by Congress over the last two years that forbids the Justice Department from spending taxpayer monies to prosecute state-compliant individuals or operations that engage in the cultivation or uh, distribution of marijuana. And so what that ruling was upholding was the fact that that specific budgetary amendment forbids the federal government from going after these individuals in states uh, where their actions are compliant with state law. That seems like it would have a big effect. It does, but because it is a budgetary amendment, it needs to be renewed by Congress every year when they pass their budgetary appropriations bills. So it's not as if this is any sort of long-term or permanent change in federal law or federal policy. This is a very limited change in that it only exists as long as that budgetary appropriation is in place. It's sort of a half-step. 
Well, it's it's a step nonetheless. Ben, you have uh, you talked about the, the scientific aspects of marijuana and its study. There is this silver lining in the DEA's decision that allows more scientific study. So what's going to be happening there? That's a good question, and I think it's to be determined. I think a lot of it will also depend on who's awarded permission by the feds to – I mean, right now, the only place we're able to go for – it's in Mississippi. So clearly we've got some geographical constraints. And then we also have, you know, not that they don't have fantastic brain power at that university, but there's a lot of people at other great institutions who probably have thought about this a little bit more. So I think it'll depend on where we end up allowing it to be done. Again, we're hoping Colorado uh, is somewhere because this does need rigorous, it needs medical study. And while we have seen some interesting anecdotal evidence of medicinal properties, again, inside of components of the plant, like no medicine is smoked, no medicine has ever been smoked, no medicine will ever be smoked. But when you see these interesting potential qualities inside of it, someone's got to extract that. I mean, we've got a couple examples of it with Sativex and um, Marinol and things like that, but we need quite a bit more. So I'm I'm hoping that my state is one, and I'm hoping that it's really a focus on research into the potential medicinal qualities more than anything else, because it seems to me like we've got a fair amount of research taking place looking at the negative aspects of it right now. Great. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, practice law. You can learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. With us today is Ben Court. He is the business development manager for the Center for Addiction Recovery and Rehabilitation. And Paul Armentano, he is the deputy director of Normal. We've been recently in our last segment talking about the decision by the DEA to keep marijuana on the Schedule 1 list and most recently about some of the scientific aspects of that. So either Paul or Ben for this one, do you think that Big Pharma will be stepping in here to conduct some of the scientific research? Well, if one actually reads the document that was issued by DEA, it is clear that that is their intention. In fact, right in the document, they argue that, in fact, they believe the University of Mississippi can adequately supply marijuana for clinical research. But they note that they wish to broaden the pool of eligible providers so that there will be a clear legal pathway for the commercial development of marijuana as a commercial product. They say that right in their documentation. So it is clear the DEA is taking a position that marijuana as raw plant material will never, in their opinion, meet the definition of medicine, but they do wish to encourage the development of medicines based on components of the marijuana plant, which will ultimately be developed by pharmaceutical companies. I'm all for patients having choices, but among those choices ought to be the potential to use marijuana as a plant if that is most applicable. And that should not be precluded by the pharmaceuticalization of marijuana. Well, Ben, your thought? Uh, I, I think I would probably come from a different school of thought with it. I, I certainly don't think we 
<laughs> disagree totally on that. I mean, Big Pharma has done some really dirty, awful stuff when you look at the way that opiates are pushed on people inside of this country. So I'm no fan of the Purdue's of the world. However, I, I am also not a fan of kind of more of the artisanally produced, um, and I'll air quote here, medications, because there's no quality controls inside of, there's no dosages, there's no regulation. So if we will call something medicine, medicine is prescribed for duration in a specific amount, you know, that's never, ever consume as much as you want, as often as you want until you feel what you want. And again, it never would be smoke. While there might be some people who would prefer that, I think that providing them with something that we could guarantee would be, and look, the system's full of issues, and I'm not going to, again, I've got all sorts of issues with the shortcomings of big pharma, but I would much rather have something that is FDA approved and we can be sure. I mean, there have been like literally hundreds of thousands of pieces of candy and of different strains of marijuana in Colorado recalled in the last two years because they found to be infected with pesticides. You get the FDA involved, you get actual rigorous scientific study, you get a company that's used to producing things in a better environment than, you know, someone growing something in their yard or someone producing something in their basement. And I think that we would have considerably less of that. So there's no perfect solution, but yeah, I think I would probably rather see this regulated like other pharmaceuticals than just have it be something that we're giving the label of medicine, but with none of the other kind of stringent requirements that we would place on anything else in this country that we would be calling medicine. Well, Paul, obviously normal, but you know, I'm going to say guess here that normal has a different perspective than that, but and it's relatively more acceptable, obviously, by the DEA's decision itself for uh, scientific study and medicinal uses to be there. But there's also, on the other hand, a significant number of states, that, including Colorado, uh, Washington, and others, that have moved toward recreational use. And as kind of, I think, Ben aptly put it, as much as you want, as often as you want, until you feel like you want type of usage. So you think Congress is ever going to approve that? The DEA would ever approve that type of use? Well, we need to make the distinction between therapeutic use and social use of a particular substance. Obviously, uh, most substances that are used therapeutically are done under the guise of a doctor's supervision. I do want to take a little bit of umbrage uh, with some comments about this notion that people never use certain therapeutics uh, when they want as needed or as much as they want. Uh, my son's an asthmatic. He has several bronchodilating drugs like Cuvar and Abuterol. And he takes those as needed. And in fact, he takes as much as he wants until uh, he has received relief. We don't check in with the doctor and call them and ask how many puffs he should take off his inhaler. Uh, so in fact, there are precedents for individuals uh, taking drugs and self-administering their drugs. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm corrected, Craig. Point, point well made. Yeah, I think me too. <laughs> okay. But with regard to the adult use, of course, you know, we're talking about a different standard, a different environment. And normal takes the position that criminalizing adults who consume cannabis responsibly is a disproportionate public policy response to behavior that is, at worst, a public health concern, but it shouldn't be a criminal justice matter. We believe that a regulated market rather than a criminal market best addresses and mitigates cannabis's potential risks and abuse potential, the sort of risks that uh, Ben is concerned about. 
Right. Well, where do we come out on that? Or where does normal come out on that issue with respect to the criminal aspect of treatment of the use of marijuana in the same way that we treat alcohol as driving under the influence or DWDU or whatever you want to call it, DWI? How does marijuana usage or social marijuana usage fit into that aspect of criminalization? Sure. Well, we as a society in 2016 already have blueprints of how to successfully regulate these sort of recreational substances. Uh, Look at tobacco, for instance. Use of tobacco among the American population is at historic lows today. That's not the case because we have criminalized the responsible use of tobacco, but because we have regulated it accordingly. We tax the product. We have age impositions and the enforcement of those age restrictions, and we promote evidence-based public health campaigns to discourage individuals from picking up the habit. Those same principles ought to apply to cannabis. With alcohol, we've also seen a tremendous decrease in the use of alcohol by our society. We've seen a decrease in the problematic use of alcohol, like binge drinking, like drunk driving. Again, the solution to these problems isn't blanket criminalization. It's legalization and common sense regulation. So this is where Paul and I will differ completely on it. Um, I, I think that the example of tobacco is an absolutely phenomenal one. And we allowed them to, you know, up until the, the mid-90s to sit in front of Congress and tell everyone that it was not addictive. There was no issue with it because they were making money hand over fist because they were advertising any way that they could. Because when they finally released all of the papers that we got a few years Ago, we saw how they were specifically targeting children, minorities, um, low-income communities. We saw the strategy that happens when you allow American-style capitalism to intersect with the marketing and sale of a potentially addictive vice substance. And it took us 150 years to start to get tobacco under control. And we finally you know, got to a point where we won't allow television commercials for it, where kids see somebody smoking and they all say, hey, that's bad because of the social stigma, um, because of the ostracizing that we have done and making people move away to smoke. The exact opposite has happened with marijuana consumption. We have been working towards the normalization of this for so long that while the other uses continue to drop because people are finally learning and we are finally starting to bust these guys' butts and you know not allow them to run ads on TV for Marlboro anymore and they can't have Joe Camel and the You know, I I could send you 250 photographs this afternoon of cartoon characters specifically marketing marijuana and THC-based products that are clearly to young people. Like, the issue is not in the criminalization, decriminalization. I've always thought decriminalization was a good idea. The issue is in the mass commercialization and industrialization of another vice substance, which is the situation we find ourselves in here in Colorado. This is the crux of the issue. And to consider some of the other states that we were talking about, one of the other five that's going to vote on it this year, the law in California is written in a way that would very clearly allow for the advertisement of marijuana and THC-based products on television. How many years did it take us to get tobacco to quit doing that? I think we got to learn from the mistakes that we made with tobacco and alcohol because, man, if we could go back and do it all over again, I guarantee it would be a tighter leash that we'd have on those guys than what we have on cannabis today. 
Well, I'm going to agree with Ben, by and large. Normal does not support mass commercialization. We represent the consumer end of this equation. And I agree. We as a society have learned some important, significant lessons from the unbridled capitalism that surrounded the promotion of cigarettes, alcohol. We're seeing it now with prescription drugs, particularly opioids. And just as those industries are being reined in and restricted in their ability ability to commercialize and promote a product, I think we are going to utilize those same lessons with regard to marijuana, particularly if we get to an environment where there is, in fact, federal regulation of the product. Unfortunately, that cannot happen in a system where marijuana remains either criminalized or in this gray market area, which it exists in today. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this moment to have you summarize your final thoughts along with your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. So, Ben, I'll throw it over to you. Sure. Um, I think my final thoughts on, on this are probably pretty simple. We have traditionally made all sorts of silly decisions in this country when it comes to creating policy around everything from driving to alcohol to drugs. And poor decisions in the past, I think, need to be considered when we're looking at what we're going to do in the future. There's about a million miles between what some of these silly laws that were instituted 150 years ago around certain drugs and the ridiculous environment that I live in today that is this kind of un- touched commercialization of. And one of the areas that, that I have always appreciated the direction that normal has come from with it, like these are not the profiteers. Normal truly are the social activists. And while Paul and I might disagree on a few things, I love that we can have an intelligent conversation and agree to disagree about it. The issue that I take is with the profiteers. The issue is with the people who are selling with absolutely no regard for what they're doing to the communities and specifically advertising to poor and minority communities and young people. And that's what we've done. We have run, we've run away from what we were and we have found ourselves where we are, which is total unchecked, driven by capitalism, industrialization, and commercialization of another substance. If we want to reschedule this, if we want to continue this conversation, science takes time. And right now, all the science that we have shows us that it does meet the criterion for a Schedule One. Maybe we need to look in this country at changing the way we define schedules. But I think there's a lot of room between what we have done in the past in this country and the direction we're going, which is giving the keys to the kingdom to uh, industry that's going to sell as much as they can to everyone who they can so they can make as much money as they can. Great. And Paul, your final thoughts? Sure. Uh, again, thank you for having me. I'd like to also thank Ben for being an articulate guest and to also congratulate you on your years of sobriety. The reality is that the criminal prohibition of marijuana does not work. If it did work, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now in 2016. The reality is, is despite nearly a century of cannabis criminalization, nearly one out of two adults in this country acknowledge having used the substance, and about 10 or 11% of the country acknowledge using it regularly. 
That's reality. And our public policy ought to reflect that reality. And as such, we ought to regulate the production, sale, and use of this product accordingly. Ultimately, a pragmatic regulatory framework that allows for the legal, licensed, commercial production and sale of cannabis to adults, but continues to restrict and discourage its use among young people, best reduces the risks associated with the plant's use and abuse, and best creates an environment where consumers can readily delineate between those two behaviors. Ultimately, public opinion is on our side, and eventually the politics will be on our side as well. If folks want to learn more about this issue, if they want to reach out and get involved, uh, Normal has a website that people can reach by simply going to www.norml.org. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.